truck and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. I'm Steve Dace. Todders and Aaron McIntyre are here as well. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on today, next hour, a full hour of Theology Thursday. We're going to tackle the question, is the, is the Bible reliable or is it outdated? And it's kind of fair to tackle this question if we're going to talk about doing a show based on a biblical worldview. I mean, it's a perfectly fair question if you're a skeptic out there. I mean, if we're going to say, hey, we're going to base the stuff we say and do on this program, uh, and the way even we're going to do it, we're going to base it off of this particular uh, foundation, this pillar. Well, then it, it's perfectly legit, I think, to question the integrity uh, and legitimacy of said pillar. And this was the topic of a recent message at uh, the local church that my family attends, was, was addressing this particular question. And we're going to let you listen in to that message, because I think, frankly, it was said better than we might be able to say it here on this program. That's coming up in the next hour of the show, and then we'll provide our commentary to it as well. Uh, also, at the bottom of the hour, we have three non-political questions. But before we get to all of that here today, here is Aaron with What Happened While We Were Away. What Happened While We Were Away, brought to you by Ceasefire. My fellow Americans, I greet you this morning from the White House to announce a major breakthrough toward achieving a better future for Syria and for the Middle East. It's been a long time. Over the last five days, you have seen that a ceasefire that we established along Syria's border has held, and it's held very well, beyond most expectations. Early this morning, the government of Turkey informed my administration that they would be stopping combat and their offensive in Syria and making the ceasefire permanent, and it will indeed be permanent. Republican House members entered a reportedly ultra-secure room inside the nation's Capitol building yesterday, aiming to disrupt closed-door proceedings in the Trump impeachment inquiry. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan explained why. It's finally reached a boiling point where members just said they are so frustrated at the idea that they can't be a part of this and see what's going on. And so we're at a standstill here. A video surfaced yesterday of James Younger, the seven-year-old boy from Texas, at the center of a court battle to allow his mother to essentially chemically castrate him. In the video, James talks to his dad about what his mother does to him. You're a boy, right? No. I'm a girl. Who told you you're a girl? Mommy. Does mommy um, do anything else like with a girl with you? Mm Mm-hmm. Like what? Like Jesus. What, What does she do? She do comes in on me. She puts dresses on you? Oh wow. She buys my headbands. Uh-huh. And she, and <clears throat> and she gets me hair clips. Oh hair clips? Okay. She, what? She paints my nails. So that why does she do that? Because I love like nail polish. Do you think you're a girl? Uh-huh. You do? Is that why you wear this, so that you can have long hair? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. A jury ruled earlier this week that James's mother will retain full custody of him and his brother after his father tried to intervene in order to stop plans for James to go through with so-called gender transition. A judge will make a final ruling in the case today. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress yesterday. I'll move on. Can you explain why you've named The Daily Caller, a publication uh, well-documented with ties to white supremacists as an official fact-checker for Facebook? Congresswoman, sure. We actually don't appoint the independent fact-checkers. They go through an independent organization called the Independent Fact-Checking Network that has a rigorous standard for who they allow to to serve as a fact-checker. So you would say that white supremacists tied... Uh, publications meet a rigorous standard for fact-checking? It would be really great if the people inside the Trump administration, all well-meaning and good, I hope, could stop hiring never-Trumpers, who are worse than the do-nothing Democrats. Nothing good will ever come from them. Learning Spanish today, today's phrase is, how do you say you're fired in English? ¿Cómo se dice estás despedido en inglés? A new Iowa State University poll of Iowa finds Elizabeth Warren is in first place with 28%. Pete Buttigieg is in second with 20%, while Bernie Sanders is in third with 18%. And finally, a headline from the Babylon Bee. Always appeals to men with pads featuring pictures of monster trucks, pro wrestlers. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's Montage brought to you by the folks over at Keeps who know that losing your hair sucks, but what you may not know is that the cause of your hair loss could be a hormone called DHT. Now, if you're talking about a possible solution, the FDA recently approved two hair treatment products that help to control your DHT that prevent uh, hair loss. In fact, it's even triggered hair regrowth in a good number of men as well. Now, up until now, though, these products were very expensive and required a doctor visit, but not anymore because Keeps now offers you the generic versions of these two FDA-approved hair care products so not only are they about 90 percent effective but they're totally affordable now as well if you want to give this a shot answer a few questions snap a few pics of your hair and a licensed doctor will review your info and recommend the right hair loss treatment for you then it's shipped discreetly to your door so if you're tired of losing your hair Get a free online doctor consult and 50% off your first order right now when you go to keeps.com slash grow. Keeps.com slash grow. Get 50% off your first order right now at keeps.com slash grow. All right, to the montage we go. And an update on the story of James Younger. Last night, Texas Governor Greg Abbott tweeted out, that he has instructed the state's Child Protective Service uh, Department uh, to look into this matter, and the Attorney General of Texas is looking into this matter as well. Here's what needs to happen. You can't, you can't give a minor, if you're a smoker in the home, you can't give a minor cigarettes. If you drink in the home, you can't give a minor a beer. It's a crime to give cocaine to a child. So there's things legal and illegal that we agree children should have no part of, correct? Of course. And, and, and there's a pretty long laundry list of said things, correct? Absolutely. Okay, here's a pretty good rule of thumb. If, if, if the state doesn't think either you're capable of operating a motor vehicle without adult supervision, say 16, 
or the state doesn't think you're capable of you know voting on who your next elected leader is or entering into a legal contract like say 18. If you're not old enough to do either one of those two things, it ought to be pretty simple that you're not old enough to determine whether you're in the wrong gender or not. Now, I don't think you should ever be able to determine this, actually. I think the whole thing ought to be illegal. Okay, but can we start with a simple thing first? At the very least, you can't do this to a child. And as somebody put it on Twitter that I retweeted earlier today, this ought to be crushed nationwide. And there ought to be nationwide legislation against this. You can't put a child behind the wheel of a car. You can't give a child a cigarette. You can't give a child a beer. And you can't give a child meth. Nor can you, can you castrate a child either. That ought to be a real easy thing to get Republicans nation. I mean, really easy. I mean, you got Ditch out there saying we got to raise the smoking age. How about raising the castration age? Could we raise that maybe? Could we raise the castration age? Is that too much to ask? And, and, and that mom ought to be in a prison cell. Period. Period. And without serious spiritual and psychological counseling, never allowed around her children ever again. She's a criminal. But this just ought to be, do not pass go, no. You cannot give a cancer stick to a kid. You can't give narcotics to a kid. You can't have sex with a kid. You can't enter into a contract with a kid. You can't put a kid behind the wheel of a car. Can't give a kid a beer. Well, you can't castrate a kid either. All the previous activities I just mentioned, what do we call people that attempt to do those things with children? What's the word we use? Criminal. You're a criminal. Monster is another one, if you prefer. Similarly, if you try to castrate your kid, you should also be a criminal and then also labeled a monster. Period. That's it. That's all there is. There isn't any more. You're a monster. It's a crime. Period. Now I want to get to this Iowa State poll. Because I was looking at this today. And I had a eureka moment. So either I have stumbled onto something or I'm just dead wrong. <laughs> right. It's going to be one of those two. And there's, there's not going to be something like, yeah, I kind of think you might be. I don't know. No, no, it won't, it won't. But that's how this show rolls, right? I mean, we're onto something or we're dead wrong. This isn't the kind of show. This isn't the eh, maybe so or the sort of show, Right. I mean, it's either... This it's is e- the maybe dead wrong show? Yes, it's, this, is, this is the bullseye or we didn't even hit the dartboard show. That's what show this is. All right? Somebody asked me the other day, I'm sitting on this Nats 22 to 1 to win the World Series ticket. Two wins away, baby. Okay, I bought this thing three months ago. And somebody asked me last night on Twitter, hey, are you, you had to have hedged. And I thought about it. There's websites you can go on to, you know, and, and people will buy. You know, it's not what, what it would pay if it paid off but it would it's still a pretty nice sum of money people will buy a ticket like this that has a chance to pay off right and i thought you know what man i just don't i don't live my life like that you know i'm just kind of i'm kind of go big or go home and pretty much everything i do right i would have been very disappointed yeah i know i just i I can't do it I, i mean it's go big or go home you know so because the because here's the thing too even though it'd be a nice chunk of change to sell change to sell the hedge this is what the final thing for me was i was just like 
do you know what freaking kind of bragging rights I'm going to have for the rest of my life? For the rest of my life. Jimmy the Greek Snyder got like one bet right once. And it was he bet on Truman to beat Dewey. And that's what made him a household name for the next four decades before he, you know, uh, made some unfortunate sociological comments at the end of his life. But, um... Is that real, what you just said? Truman yes. Dewey that is was what the, made that the was Greek? The, that was the bet that made Jimmy the Greek, yes. He bet he Harry bet. Truman wow. went against Thomas Dewey, yes. And uh, I, uh, I, I just, the, the bragging rights, yeah, I, I, you know, if the ticket pulls off compared to what I could sell it for in the hedge, it's, it'd be a few hundred dollars, not an insignificant amount of money. But the bragging rights, bro, I'm forever going to be able to play that card against all you all. And don't think if it turns out that I won't, right? And that is worth far more than a couple of hundred bucks here or there if, the he- if I hedge or it pays off or it doesn't, is the bragging rights of saying, I called my shot and it paid off. You know, you know what? You totally get what I'm saying, right? Oh, yeah. The hedge would have been a Team GOP move I mean, all dude, the way. Dude, I can put that on my tombstone. Like, after loving father, loving son, <laughs> loving husband. Nats 2019. Okay? Nats 22 to 1. Okay? I might put that. I might, I might have that in carved right at the bottom if this goes through. Okay? So, but that's kind of how we roll around here. You know, we aim big. You know, there's no point in, in you know, trying to, you know, do things uh, little bits at a time. So I'm going to throw out a theory that that's an epiphany and it could be way right or it's way off. Either way though, you're going to like it. So you're looking at me specifically? I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you, Urza. Oh. Yes, you're going to like this. Oh. Okay. Because this is in the wheelhouse now of what you have been preaching all year long. Instant replays bit? No, sorry. Yes. Not that. In fact, I'm at the point now, I'm so tired of watching my teams get screwed. I just, I want, I want robot refs and everything instant replay now. Everything, everything, constantly, everything. But that's a topic for another day. Um, if you notice Pete Buttigieg and his emergence in this Iowa State poll, and, and in general, when I look at state polls, I like local university polls. You know, one of the most famous examples is the Marquette University poll in your home state of Wisconsin is a, is a state university poll that's very respected. And, and one of the reasons why I like it is because um, they have a pretty good, they're going to have a better handle probably on identifying what the turnout model is and who's likely to turn out in a given community than someone who's doing, pulling the whole country and, and, and this is part of what they do. Similar to when I worked for WHO, I knew more about the Iowa caucuses than I know now. I still know more than the average person does, but I have to know about, about all kinds of other things because I don't cover that full time anymore, right? And so that's why I asked Bob, hey, what do you think when you're here? That's why we brought our old uh, cohort, the, the Des Moines Register, David Yepsen in, because yes. these are guys that are now doing this full time when I used to do it full time, but my, my full time job doesn't permit me to do that anymore. And so they've got a more consistent ear to the ground, and that's why I'm looking for people you know, we always try to put people on the show that know something we don't know or we can't tell you. Otherwise, what's the point of giving them the airtime, right? Well, if you looked at this poll and you'll notice Pete Buttigieg went up. And so whenever somebody goes up, you start looking at who went down. And not always, okay? Because if several people went up and several people went down, correlation isn't always causation, nor is causation always correlation. And those things aren't always congruent. But when it's everybody else is stagnant, 
and one person went way up and another person went way down. That is a marker. That's a data point you have to look at. If you look at this Iowa State University poll, Elizabeth Warren has gone up a couple of points, but, but she's been leading here in Iowa for a while now. Pete Buttigieg's, and I, I struggle with how to pluralize his name all the time with the extra G's. Did I say it right that time? Pete? I maybe so. that's, I should we just go with Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete's rise in this poll is almost the exact number that Joe Biden fell. It's almost the exact number. Like, and, and polling is not this simplistic and, and, and polit, political science is not this simplistic. But it is almost like one group of voters specifically left a candidate and went to another. If you look at the, the ad that Mayor Pete is running in Iowa the most right now, um, one of the things he says a lot is, hey, you know what? I'm fine with offering Medicare for all for people that can't afford their own health insurance, but I don't know why we would take away people's health care that they like and put them on a program that they don't. That, that's the definition of a centrist in today's Democratic Party. Last week, when Beta O'Rourke said that we should take away the tax exemptions of all the churches, including churches that have high minority populations, um, you know, black Christian churches, uh, mosques, synagogues, that typically turn out in droves for Democrats, that that should be included as well. I went and looked it up. Now, Elizabeth Warren, when, it, when asked about it eventually, also said she did not agree with this, by the way. But the first Democratic candidate I could find in terms of real time who said they disagreed with Beto on this was Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete is on the record saying doesn't agree with Beto's take away all the guns. It's just not realistic. And all it does is, you know, uh, scare people into thinking that we're coming after them when we're not. We're just concerned about gun violence. Do you see the trend line I'm going for here? He is a veteran as well. And even though he's openly gay, he doesn't carry with him any of the stereotypical accoutrements associated often with particularly in a state like Iowa, that's not San Francisco. We don't have a high gay population here, all right? So a lot of the, the stereotypical accoutrements that go along with that lifestyle, unless you were on the campaign trail and saw him making out with his husband, would you pick up on that? No. No? No. There's no effeminence, no obvious effeminence. No flamboyance, right? None of the stereotypical accoutrements and who knows how much of that is true or not. But he doesn't look like and carry himself in the way the average person that shows up at a rainbow jihad parade screaming their lungs out does. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. We've been talking about Joe Biden imploding and that in that poll, that's an implosion. I mean, if he, if he were to finish there in Iowa, uh, you know, good night, 
good luck, you know, uh, to quote a famous rap lyric, pack it up, pack it in. I mean, that's where you're at. I mean, if, if he were to finish there, you know, fire up uh, Don Meredith. All right, good night, the party's over, okay? And, and we've talked about, and I have said to you, Todd, that he can't implode unless someone else emerges to take that space. That's just the way politics works. That's the way the laws of nature work. Nature abhors a vacuum, okay? And so it's, it's why when we remove God from the God-shaped hole of our heart, we'll put idols there because something always has to fill a void. The only time ever in human existence that we have accepted nothing times nothing equals something is Darwinian evolution, <laughs> right? In every other area and facet of human, human existence from time in memoriam, we have never ever accepted nothing times nothing gets us something. We've always wanted something there instead of the nothing, always. And part of my problem in, in answering that challenge, what that something would be, is while I've proclaimed the possibilities of Mayor Pete and Tulsi to some extent in a field of 20-something, it's hard to predict if one of them is going to do it versus like five of them chipping Correct. away at it. Correct. I think what you're beginning to see is he's running up the middle. He's, he, is, he, is, he is the one emerging that could take Joe Biden's place in the field. As the, um, uh, as, as the candidate that um, doesn't hate you. I mean, here's the gay guy that doesn't even want your tax exempt status uh, taken away for preaching that he's a sinner, and if he doesn't repent, he'll go to hell. And what could be more non-threatening than that? I mean, he served in the military. I think he served actually back when Bush was president. If I, if I looked at the time, I think he was in service back when Bush was president. I mean, he served in the military, even in a, even in a Republican president. He's the mayor of a small town in Indiana. He's surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, white, I'm sorry, uh, conservatives like you all the time. Some of his best friends are white supremacists. He's from Indiana, after all, home of the Klan. And I wonder if now we are beginning to see who the new centrist candidate will be. Now that it's clear, because here's the thing, you can't, you can't be the front runner for months and then finish in fourth place the first time we have a vote, or third place for that matter. You, just, you, you can't survive that. You, that never happens in politics. Donald Trump was in first place for months and then finished second to Ted Cruz, but it was such a strong second. Didn't really hurt him all that much in the end, especially when he, when he had Fox News out there uh, crushing our victory narrative and pimping Marco Rubio instead. You think I'm onto something here, that he is now positioning himself. He is going to be the, the candidate that's going to represent whatever faction Joe Biden once did. Yeah, you know I do. I, I, I've seen this ability in him. You saw it when he stood. Uh, and your analysis of Beto earlier on was just about, and, and Aaron's as well, about just the unlikability of him. When those two were standing toe-to-toe debating back and forth, you, you you couldn't help but be impressed at Mayor Pete's ability to just stand one-on-one. Kind of, 
kind of like you know we are with sons and you are with your son in football you're going to do this you know there's that that military aspect of him he's like I, I, there's it's not theater to him he has an ability to stand in the arena and debate and articulate and to be not afraid and you you have to know thy enemy he's not a guy you want as your president but you go if you're going to take him on as an opponent or, or if you're going to uh, try to marginalize him you apps you need to be clear on what his genuine bona fides are if it's real or if it's memorex and listen the, the guy has got some real skills uh some real gravitas and and you need and 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 the fact that Steve characterized his uh, homosexuality the way that he did is important because you have to think of what's normative to the left in its totality and how they think about things. And he is so... Right, some young. of them are attacking him for not being gay enough, right? Right, right absolutely. And he he's so... Like, there's, there's nothing controversial in terms of the way... He's. I mean, we're, we're, you just got done talking. Until he starts talking about, about issues, there's nothing threatening about him. Yeah, nothing. Just, before we just talked, talked about Mayor Pete, we're talking about k- turning a little seven-year-old boy into a, a Frankenstein. He is so yesterday on this spectrum of where we're going. People are just going to like check that box and move on. Now, here's what I want to see. If he gets asked about this case in Texas, and he says, listen, we can't do that to seven-year-old children. Okay, I mean, I just we, we, we can't do stuff like that to kids of that age. If he has the if he has the political acumen, calculus, cojones to to play that card in a Democratic primary. Then you will have convinced me finally that he is um not just a novelty because of his sexuality, and he represents a, you know, in that party, that's, that's their, their, their new civil rights crusade, okay? But that now he's, he's, he's a viable electoral threat because he'll, have, he'll demonstrate a level of, of self-awareness that has, just, has been not just lacking, void, null and void from the entire Democratic primary. None of their candidates... We thought Joe Biden was going to do that. We thought his rollout was tremendous, just analyzing it politically. He had the exact right rollout. He got into this primary, lasted 10 minutes, and then essentially just took away every reason you'd ever, you'd ever think of. Maybe I can tolerate his presidency to get rid of Trump, right? He took it all away from you. He offered you no safe harbor at all. And so if, 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 he, if he is the one that produces the sister soldier moment here, then you will have finally convinced me, okay, I think this is a serious combatant not just a novelty but a serious combatant aaron your thoughts i think your theory is true in the midwest i i don't know if that's going to play as well with democrats in other parts of the country because i can i can uh point out a handful of people that i know personally at least from my hometown who consider themselves liberals they're really progressives you know at, at heart who, who would definitely see themselves voting for uh, somebody who is palatable, uh, like, like a Pete Buttigieg, who aren't, who aren't radical leftists, but they are kind of uh, middle-case uh, progressives, sure. if, if you will. Yep. So I think he is definitely palatable, and uh, he, he, is the, he is to uh, Joe Biden, I think, what, uh, what Elizabeth Warren has been to, to Bernie Sanders so far. And I think uh, definitely in the Midwest, he's got a, sh- a shot at some of those states. As you get into the further leftist parts of the country, 
um, the, the bigger cities, the, the, the large population centers. I still don't know with the African-American uh, vote. I, I'm not sure how well that's going to play. But then again, if he's not overtly playing up to the gay stereotype, if you will, then maybe he does. Maybe that doesn't matter quite as much. But I'm I'm not quite sold on that. But I, I definitely think your theory, at least in the Midwestern states, are are, are is a little bit. Uh, it rings true. I think Wouldn't so. it be fascinating to see the two, her and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg split Iowa and New Hampshire? Now, if he wins Iowa, it's going to be really close. Okay, I, she could she could win Iowa by seven, eight, nine points. I think. Um, but I think if he were to win, it's going to be like one to three. And then she turns around and wins New Hampshire. And we go down to South Carolina. <laughs> Could you only imagine Elizabeth Warren realizing if I lose two of the first three states to Pete Buttigieg, I'm done. I got to win here. And if she starts playing uh, the gay card, it won't, it, it, it won't be up by front. proxy. Yeah, by proxy. Okay, similar to what we saw George W. Bush's people do to John McCain in South Carolina, allegedly back in 2000 on the race card. Could we see some of Elizabeth Warren's uh, uber progressive friends uh, engage in some of those things like what was done to uh, Thad Cochran in Mississippi uh, a few years ago? Could they do that to a Pete Buttigieg in South Carolina? That would be something fascinating to watch. Three non-political questions are next. If you're struggling to meet your weight loss goals, good news. Uh, help could be on the way. It's called Riduzone. See, one of the things that can be a fly in the ointment is can be hard to get your portion sizes and cravings under control. And that's because your body was made uh, to crave and conserve calories. So when you have been going over the calorie count your body needs for a long time, how do you get it to go back? Well, the good news is your creator put a molecule uh, in your body for just such a dilemma. It's called OEA. And what it does, it's got one function in your body. It sends the signal from the belly to the brain to let the brain know when you're full so that the brain does its thing metabolically from there. And you kind of turn off the notion that, hey, I need to keep eating. But when you kind of go uh, and blow past that uh, street sign so long, you just start ignoring it altogether, right? Well, that's where Riduzone comes in. It wants to boost the OEA in your body with more OEA. And that's all that it is. It's not loaded with chemicals or additives or preservatives or caffeine stimulants of any kind. That's why it's FDA accepted, vegan friendly, and gluten free. It's just OEA to boost your OEA because willpower is only going to take you so far when you're up against the way you were created, okay? So help get everything back in line uh, with Riduzone. And right now they're offering you uh, for three months. Why three months? It takes about 90 days uh, for something to become habit-forming from a lifestyle uh, perspective. So give it a shot for three months and see if it helps you start making healthier habit choices. Use my name, Steve, for the promo code and uh, you'll get 30% off that three-month supply at Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E for Riduzone.com. And now it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. 
some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. That's right, because we need a break from the demise, fall of Western civilization. Three non-political questions. Brought to you by me, the one time of the week that I actually do some show prep. Question number one, what's the most overrated and underrated recent trend? Most overrated and underrated recent trend. Yeah, I'm not one into following a lot of trends. So, um, you want to take this one? We'll start with underrated. Well, but that's, I have a... I think pumpkin spice is an underrated trend. Instantly, I went political. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say pumpkin spice is an underrated trend. Because the the reality is, if you didn't, I understand, you know, being sick of everything being pumpkin spiced. I get that. But the truth of the matter is, if you try most of the seasonal flavors nowadays that are pumpkin spiced, the truth of the matter is, they're really good. Pumpkin bars are really good. Pumpkin flavored ice cream is really good. Pumpkin in most baked goods is really good, okay? So I I get that it has become, you know, plain Jane. I totally get that, okay? I I get that it's kind of played out, but lost in the maybe even legit backlash to how everything has to have the term pumpkin on it this time of year is the reality that most things that you traditionally apply pumpkin to are good, if not made better, by the pumpkin flavoring. So I'm going to say for my underrated, pumpkin spice is actually underrated, despite the backlash. Uh, overrated, I've got a couple. Ha- Halloween, I just got a really cool picture, oldie, from my sister. She sent it, It was, and so we're talking probably 1980, uh, because uh, I it's the old school... Uh, Halloween outfits that you bought in the box, Steve. That you yeah. can with the and the masks are the plastic. plastic masks. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm uh, I'm Vader. My sister is next to me. Uh, she's Leia, and then my brother is Yoda. I'm just fantastic. So, but Halloween back then we weren't. It, now adults are planning for this for like a month and a half. You settle down. All right, this is not. It's not Advent. There shouldn't be an Advent for Halloween. It's one day. Um, and I'll, I'll, since Steve, uh, uh, he gives me license to do this, if he's just going to double, triple down, I, I, overrated, it, and by, by any objective measure, and people are really coming, uh, it, it's instant replay. It, people have more questions about the rules and the certainty of football than ever before. I, I challenge anybody to argue with that. So we keep thinking ourselves that we can uh, build a better mousetrap. We can't. We won't. We're not. It's brutal. Um, for my overrated, yeah, I, you almost had me convinced on instant replay, but I'm, I'm going the other way now. I'm, I'm kind of at the point we have all this technology, and the athletes are too good, and these officials just are, are cataclysmically awful. 
And if we're going to have billions and billions of dollars of money exchanging hands on the outcomes of these games, and, and you can't, you don't know when, okay, you blow a call once, but you don't know that the same guy twice didn't put his hand in the guy's face mask, and we can all just look up at the Jumbotron and see that, and that determines the outcome of a game, or you're sitting there watching a team, and you got two referees standing right there. When you watch a member of the Rams lobotomize on field, a member of the Saints, and that determines who goes to the biggest sporting event not called the Olympics on planet Earth. I'm I'm kind of going the other way uh, on this now, especially being at the College World Series this year and seeing how they do it. Where man, they they just do this in three seconds. And the guy got up there in the booth. Was he safe? Was he out? Okay, cool. And we just all move on. I mean, I, I mean, I, I sitting there. No game moves slower than baseball. I happened to be there the day Michigan was there. It was the first like ninety de- and was like the only ninety some odd degree day of what was a fairly seasonable year at the College World Series. So it was, you know, it was piping hot, we're out in the sun, because I almost got, because courtesy of my friend at the Kansas City Royals, I got almost two good of seats, because we're right there on the third base line behind the dugout, so we're right out in the sun, and we're baking. But, you know, it didn't slow the game that down that much at all. They got it done just like that. Quick, all right, safe, nope, out, cool, cool. All right, moving on. You know, so I'm at the point now where I'm kind of beginning to go the other way, particularly with the sports wagering aspect involved. Um, so for my overrated trend, how about the, um, well, it's gotta be non-political, so I can't do that either. You know what? Uh, kvetching and bitching about Star Wars is becoming overrated now. Okay. I mean, it's, 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 it's just, you know, it's, it's like, you're not one of the cool kids anymore. If you're not, if you're not dunking on it now. I think it's that's kind of where I'm at now with that. So I'm going to say that's overrated. Aaron's next question brought to you by realestateagentsitrust.com. If you want to get involved in the real estate market, the timing is good. Mortgage rates are plunging. The economy is still robust. And with winter coming in a, lot, in, in a large swath of the country, you can see buyers who are looking uh, to get into their next home, want to make that move before winter arrives. Sellers who want to get out of that home uh, want to do so before winter arrives. So, hey, the timing is ideal. But before you go in, make sure you've got a real estate agent that you can trust, one whose track record of success has been fully vetted, one who understands what a marketing plan means, and that's been fully vetted, and one who knows what the phrase professional courtesy means, and that's been fully vetted as well. Fully vetted. Notice I reinforced that phrase three times because they wouldn't be on the website if they were not. Say it with me now fully vetted all right so if you want to find an agent worthy of having you for a client who checks all three of those boxes i just mentioned and has been fully vetted go to realestateagentsitrust.com that's realestateagentsitrust.com so my underrated trend is defense i mean i i don't know if you've noticed this in the nfl this year especially but defense has really been stepping up in an age where so many of the rules are skewed offensively and there are so many really elite, I guess I use that word, skill players probably spread out more across the league than ever before. I think defense has actually been uh, de- defense has actually been stepping up. Overrated trend. I'm seeing this more and more. People just taking positions on Twitter and social media that they know are not popular just just to get attention. It's like a two-year-old child, you know, the Beatles around, are terrible. Star Wars sucks. Sitting around in, in, in a room with the parents saying yeah. it's too quiet in here. I need attention. Let me scream. That's, that's what that is. Question number two, if you were a criminal, what would your crime of choice be? And describe, describe <laughs> how you would carry that out. 
is a criminal. What would my crime of choice be? Um, vigilanteism. Uh, 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 I'd essentially be like, um, it, and I wouldn't be, you know, like, um, uh, what was the, the equalizer? I would not do that. Okay. But um, a vigilanteism sort of like, you know, underground railroad kind of a thing for stories like what's going on in Texas right now. Yeah, nice tweet, by the way. If, yeah, what you said regarding oh, that. I mean, no, outstanding. I'm, Stepping I'm, up and doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm 100% sincere. I think you have to, at some point, you know, um, providing providing the black market infrastructure mechanisms or helping to connect people to those black market infrastructures and mechanisms. You know, I, I, I do this more A-team style, all right? I mean, it wouldn't be necessarily a high body count, you know, but um, we just, uh, we, 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 we out MacGyvered you here in the process, George Papard style, uh, and helping people uh, when the law becomes lawless um, and, and they want to live by what the real law is, um, helping them to navigate that process. That would be my crime of choice. I think we already know this because people are, I think there's probably a line in Vegas on when it happens, but I'm the dad on the track when, when <laughs> they the took it the, off the board, when the dude, all the action was one-sided, when the dude in the dress is going to run against one of my daughters. Yeah. The question yeah. is, do they know that they, are right. they aware of this? <laughs> That's the question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would be a diamond thief. I want to steal this, the, the pink Panther diamond. Not even sure if that's a real thing, but I want to steal it. Hey, uh, if, if you want to help protect your wealth against societal breakdown, like we're seeing nowadays, because you know what the same people who want to let a mom castrate her kid are, are the same people that want to um, confiscate a lot of your uh, retirement savings, wealth, prosperity, because they know how to spend it better than you. Don't you know? So if you're looking for the mechanism that helps to exempt all of the hard work that you have put into earning what you've earned and the worker is worth his hire, great. That shows you're smart. That shows you're not a sheeple. You're independent. You're a critical thinker. But don't go with something that, I mean, a couple of things I'm teaching my kid, my son. Anything that begins with the word Russian is bad. Okay? Anything that begins with the word Russian is probably bad. Secondly, um, anything that begins with the phrase crypt. All right, that, those are the first, that's the root word of what we're doing here is crypt. No. Instead, go with the gold, all right? What would you rather be? We don't give out crypt medals at the Olympics, folks. All right? Has one of your daughters ever won a crypt medal? Not no. to my knowledge. No, we, we, we give out gold medals. Why do we do that? That is a recognition that that's the best there is, all right? And so gold has stood the test of time when it comes to uh, withstanding the tests from fake news media that want to crash an economy so they get the election outcome they want, or scheming politicians with their currency wars and trade wars. That's why you want to get the free report and DVD from our friends over at Swiss America called The Timeless Truth About Gold. You can get it right now by going to SwissAmerica.com. That's SwissAmerica.com or give them a call. 800-289-2646. That's 1-800-289-2646. Question number three, what's on your Mount Rushmore of musicals? 
Uh, the Wizard of Oz and Greece are way ahead of everybody else. And first, I'm not a big musical guy. Okay, so I mean, it's got to be. I, he I says thought, with jazz hands I, right there. I, 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 did, oh, I, I, did, I did just kind of do that, didn't I? I thought yes. for sure I was going to get called out for a dude code violation for asking this question. But. I would have until I had daughters. Okay. Um. Although I've always, The Wizard of Oz has always been one of my all-time favorite movies, and I actually didn't understand that it was in the musical genre until you know I had daughters. And because then they want to watch it all the time when they're little, and you're like, "Hey, what what section is this at on Voodoo or you know, uh, Blockbuster?" Like you know, ten fifteen years ago when it was Anna, and it was always in the musical section. I was like, "Wow, okay." So we found a musical other than Grease that I actually like. So The Wizard of Oz is like one of my top ten all time favorite movies. I mean, the the scene where Dorothy opens up the world into Oz. I mean, I, that that was filmed what seventy years ago, and and that that still stands up the test of time today. Okay. So wizard of Oz is a num- is clearly number one. Uh, Greece is clear. Number two. Now it's way it's, it's clear behind number one, but it's number two with a bullet. And you know, Olivia Newton, John was uh, a, a, in, in the final uh, musical number. There was, was key to unlocking my puberty. Uh, if you catch my drift uh, when I was of, of a certain age. Uh, so that would be number two. Um, and then for me, number three, um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with Judy Garland here because you can't go wrong. And I'm gonna go with Meet Me in St. Louis for number three. Those are good. I'm gonna go with those for my top three. Let's see. Uh, one of my daughters was in a uh, middle school production of Guys and Dolls. I really enjoyed that. So we'll put that up there. What was the one uh, – I went there with, like, zero expectations at best, and I actually enjoyed it. What was the musical, like, more than a decade ago with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor? I don't know. I, I know what I know what you're talking about. I just don't know the title. That, the, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to you know, do no, no, Koja. No, no. I, I know what you're talking about. I just don't know the title, and I never saw it. Um, Moulin Rouge. There, that's it. That's Thank it. You. I yeah. actually uh, – that was good. I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I think you have to, uh, because I can't think of two other two off the top of my head. A Wizard of Oz, you 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 of course cannot go wrong. Ooh, a fourth, a four. Aaron, start talking. Oh, I have to have yes. four. I only gave you three, yeah, right? That's great, well, you're yeah. familiar with Mount Rushmore, right? <laughs> <laughs> you did. I just let that go because I was like, no, wow. I just totally screwed that up. That's no, no. But thank you for covering for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> you even uh, said out loud. So there's my three. Do you even know? It's like, do you even know Hunts? Do you even know Star Wars? I'll let you guys think for a little bit. I, I think for me, if you go and see it in person, the pyrotechnics are amazing. That would be the Phantom of the Opera. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, my wife loves that. Um, the second one, the is probably Les Mis. You got to be in the right mood to watch it. But it is. I mean, there are some great numbers in that one. How to succeed in business without really trying. Uh, only because I played in the pit for that for a live production multiple times. And then the fourth one, simply because uh, indoctrination, thanks to my sister, is probably Oklahoma. Hmm. I'll have to throw in. So I, I guess we're not counting like any Disney films because those are too easy, right? Okay, because right. they have a song. Okay. I'm going to throw in Wicked, which I have not seen myself. I have seen. I took Amy for our 20th wedding anniversary a couple of years ago. I took her out 
we went because I had a speaking engagement in New York, and we just stayed extra in Manhattan. We went to see Wicked on Broadway, and that was pretty I li- cool. I listened to that soundtrack because my wife and daughters went so much, and it's excellent. The music. So, is so I'll, I'll, here's my fourth. I'm going to put in Hairspray because I because my oldest uh, had the lead Tracy, our oldest Anna did in that uh, two years ago down at the Civic Center here in Des Moines. So. I, I, because that's kind of a proud daddy moment. I'm going to make that fourth there on my go. musical list. Well done. That's it. All right. That's it. All right. So here's what we're going to do next hour for Theology Thursday. I'm going to set it up now because I want to make sure we have plenty of time for you guys to listen to this. You know, we're going to, we talk all the time about doing a show here based on a biblical worldview. That's what we are trying to, um, when we see, when we analyze events and give you our takes, opinions, It's from that framework. That's the foundation of what we do here on the Steve Day Show. Well, it only, I think it's only fair. And for a lot of my life, I was on the other side. I get emails from folks like uh, that are call themselves skeptics and stuff all the time. Well, you know, until I was, you know, 30 some odd years old, I was in your, on your side of this equation. I was too. So it's only, I think it's perfectly fair for us to say, hey, this is what we rely on to bring you this program every day. It's from this foundation. This is our Q source, if you will. It's perfectly fair to then ask, well, how legit and reliable is that source? So is the, is the Bible unreliable and outdated? That was the topic of a recent sermon at our home church that my family attends. We're going to share that message with you for Theology Thursday when we come back, and then we'll have some time left over to comment on it. All right. Hour two is on its way right here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Stay tuned. Back with Hour 2, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. If you are listening today via the podcast, please give us those five-star reviews. Thank you to the thousands of you that have done this for us already. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Theology Thursday this week brought to you by Relief Factor. If you're one of millions of Americans struggling with chronic pain, this is not pain Chronic doesn't mean necessarily from an injury or an illness that requires professional medical help and care, okay? But this is pain in the body from inflammation. Well, your body was made to push back on inflammation. That's how it was created. It just may need a little bit of help doing what it was created to do. And instead of prescribing drugs to treat symptoms, how about natural remedies that help the, your nature Uh, do what it was supposed to do. And that's where Relief Factor comes in. What I love about it the most, it works, yes, but there's a lot of things that work too that aren't 100% drug-free, even though they were created by physicians who can prescribe drugs like Relief Factor was. And they're so confident in this product and as someone who uses it on a daily basis for months now, I can attest to the fact they should be. They're so confident in this product that they're offering a three-week starter kit right now for a dollar a day. That's it. A dollar a day to see if you start seeing results for a dollar a day. 20 bucks for the starter kit because they believe you're going to see results and you're going to come back for more. All right. If you want to call their bluff, get the starter kit right now at relieffactor.com. Again, that's relieffactor.com. Well, as we said here at the end of the hour, Theology Thursday, if we're going to do a show based on a biblical worldview, it seems only fair then to answer the question Is the Bible unreliable? and outdated. 
This was a question we tackled at my home church here in central Iowa recently. Our pastor, Pastor Quinton, addressed this, and I thought this message was so well done. I want to share it with you in our audience this week for Theology Thursday. And then we'll spend, it'll take a good portion of the hour, and then when it's done, we'll have plenty of time for our commentary when it's over. Here's part one. Does the Bible claim to be God's word? What does it say on the outside of the jar? Does the Bible have anything to say about itself? Second, does the Bible seem to be God's word? What does it look like when we take off the cover and look inside? Does the Bible look like something that God would have written? could have written. And thirdly, does the Bible prove to be God's word? What does it taste like? Can we know in our own personal experience that the Bible really is God's word? So let's ask that first question. Does the Bible claim to be God's word, right? So imagine that you're on a beach, very sunny and beautiful day on the beach, and suddenly a guy emerges from the surf He's dripping wet and he's wearing a tuxedo, all right? You might look at each other and you, one says, well, you know, maybe he was like a cruise guy and he fell off the ship and he made his way back. Or maybe he's like a really well-dressed pirate, whatever. But you just look at him and then you stand and walk away. No, you would probably ask, who are you? What are you? Why are you here? You know, this kind of, and that's what we need to do with the Bible first. Let the Bible speak about what the Bible says it is, all right, first, all right? So what does the Bible, does the Bible claim to be God's word? Well, this, I'm going to give you a few passages which are simply representative of many hundreds of passages of what the Bible says about itself, all right? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Then honey for the honeycomb. If you take any time at all reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find out that the Bible claims to be the word of God repeatedly. In fact, in the very first five books of the Bible, that the law of Moses or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Bible, it says the phrase, God said more than 700 times. It claims to be the voice of God here. And there are 4,000 such claims in the Old Testament. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament view the Old Testament as the word of God. What did Jesus teach about this? What was his view of the Old Testament? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. This is what they called the Old Testament scriptures in his day, the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So he has a very high view of the Bible and the word of God. In fact, Jesus is a Bible-quoting preacher. Even before he began his public ministry, he's out uh, in the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan, we're told. 
And how does he respond to Satan? By quoting Bible verses to him. He says, it is written, man will not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he just keeps coming at after Satan with Bible verses. So Jesus had the view that the Bible is the word of God. Uh, in fact, at one point he prays uh, to the Father, sanctify them, his disciples, by the truth. Your word is truth. It's reliable. What does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? Um, here's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to Timothy, a leader in the early church. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you, and you know how that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, note what he says here. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, is God-breathed. This is not a human invention. This is the very words of God, that God spoke and breathed out these words. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, profitable for teaching and so forth. So that's his view. And then one of the, and here's interesting, because Jesus told his disciples, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will enable you to remember all that I have taught you and to teach others those things so that you will be led into the truth. And so they, what they spoke were not just their own thoughts, but the very words of Jesus and the very words of God when they taught. So how did the New Testament view the New Testament writings themselves? It's kind of an odd question, okay? There's one passage, super interesting, where the Apostle Peter turns and starts talking about the Apostle Paul, all right? He says, our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. This wasn't his thoughts, this was from God, all right? And he says he speaks about these things in all his letters. We have his letters, right? In, in, in our New Testament. There are some matters that are hard to understand. Guys, I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. There are still things that cause me to scratch my head. They're like, what in the world is going on? There's some crazy, weird stuff in the Bible. There are. I mean, and there's still some stuff I, I don't totally understand. But they're hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Now, this is a passing comment that Peter makes about Paul. And he refers to Peter, Paul's letters, and then he compares them to the rest of the scriptures. He actually calls the writing of Paul scripture. Wow. That, 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 so they already had this kind of awareness that what they were communicating was the word of God. Now, it is, there are some hard to understand parts. I, I, I took a, I was on a trip to Seattle a while back, and I took a picture of this restroom door. All right, here it is. It's like really hard to get into. It's like, wow, they've got a lock on it, and code, you know, you gotta punch this thing. And then there's this tiny little sign above it, and I'll read it for you. It says, no code needed for restroom access. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? What? I don't get it. Why do you have this kind of, looks like the entry to Fort Knox here, but no code needed, just go on in. Okay, whatever. There's parts of the Bible I read like that. And it's like, what? 
I tilt my head, so that's okay. Keep asking questions, that's fine, all right? There are hard to understand parts. So the Bible clearly claims for itself to be the word of God. But secondly, does the Bible seem to be God's word? When you look into it, does this seem like something God communicated through, uh, uh, through human uh, beings? Now, I came across this little thing. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of a, a, a big jar of wishing stones. This is Seattle again, okay? <laughs> wishing stones are 10 times more powerful for granting wishes than a single shooting star. I looked inside to the rocks and I thought, no, I don't buy it, you know? It's not, why? That's quite a claim. Well, what happens when you look into the Bible? Well, uh, Barry Cooper here, the writer of that book I mentioned before was, he writes this, imagine a radio station, a radio with 66 stations. As you flick rapidly between them, you notice something very odd. The songs sound different. There's country and western, collides with hip hop, collides with opera, but each new vocalist is developing the same story. Well, the Bible contains 66 documents. Approximately 40 authors wrote in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years. Some of the authors were young, some were old, some were professionals, others were peasants, some were soldiers, others were civil servants, fishermen, farmers, or kings. And they wrote in wildly different genres. History and population statistics and poetry and travel diaries, law, prophecy, family trees, biography, geographical surveys, architectural blueprints, song lyrics, etc. They wrote in different periods of history, in different geographical locations to different groups of people. It wasn't like a relay race with one author handing on the baton to another. Often the authors wrote centuries apart. So consider all that for a moment. And what if multiple authors, he says, Barry Cooper said, what if multiple authors had written this book? All right? Uh, he said, what if each author wrote in a different genre, in different centuries, in different countries, with no master plan for them to consult? What is the likelihood that it would make any sense at all? Yet the Bible has a single theme running all the way through it like rings on the trunk of a tree. It tells the unified and coherent story of humanity's creation by God, humanity's rebellion against God, and God's redemption of his people. It's like flicking between the 66 different stations and finding that each one is advancing the same story, a grand symphonic drama that grows in beauty as it's developed. As well as having a single theme, the Bible has a single hero. Each of these 66 documents, even the ones written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, are all singing the same song. And the song consistently is about Jesus. And Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, quote, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. And what are the odds of that? All this coming together, how does it happen? Well, I want to take just a few Bible verses and let's look inside the jar and say, what does this seem to fit together? Does this seem to hold together? So I want to start with uh, the uh, prologue to the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke tells us how he came up with uh, this Gospel of Luke. In the very first four verses, he kind of lays out, here was how it came about. So let's read it. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
Keep going. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, which is a guy he's kind of dedicating the book to, probably helped him in his mission and he wants to, you know, lay it all out for him. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In other words, did this really happen? Is this the way it happened? He wants to do this in a history and in a biography of Jesus and the early movement of Christians. So that's what he does. Now, a lot, now Luke wrote this in approximately 40 years after the time of Jesus when, he, uh, when Christians believed he ascended into heaven, right? 40 years later. And a lot of people automatically say, wait a minute, 40 years later? All sorts of stuff, oral tradition. It's like, you know, you pass on the story, you pass on the story. How many of you have played the telephone game? Right? Raise your hand. Okay. So let's say I, uh, I, I play the telephone game and for 40 years, we're going to start way over here at this side and I'm going to whisper in your ear, you know, something, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, you've never heard it before. And you pass it on to the next person and it snakes through the crowd and snake and all the way through. And by the end of it, it comes over to you. What's the likelihood of it staying intact? Very minimal. There's no way I could possibly do that. And over 40 years, forget it. It's just impossible. So lots of skeptics and critics of the Bible are like, there's no way we can believe that these are at all reliable. I mean, it's just oral tradition. It just passes it on. It's just hopelessly, who knows what they came up with 40 years later. Well, that's an interesting thought. But here's the thing about that. That's not actually how the Bible came together. And specifically, when Luke tells us, how did it actually come together? It's not so much like the telephone game as it is the uh, a, a quilt. All right, so Angelica, come up here, please. All right, can we cheer for Angelica? She's going to help me with this, uh, with this quilt here, all right? And by the way... Angelica and Josh are heading off to a, uh, on a trip, to a mission trip to Ethiopia on Wednesday. Can we cheer for these guys? That's awesome. And promise me you'll pray for them before the day is over. And uh, we, we want to we wanna send them on the race. But Angelica, thank you so much. Okay, so here's the quilt. So here's the deal. Uh, we have a quilters group at Valley Church. Cheer for the quilters group. All right, yay! They're awesome. And they made this quilt for my beautiful bride, Ruth, all right? When she had, and, and she's back in Des Moines, celebrate that too, that's great, you know? So this quilt is in her room, usually, until I steal it. All right, so here we go. So the, the women of the quilters group made this quilt, which means what? They harvested the cotton, out in the fields, they painstakingly thread these together, dyed the various colors and so forth, and they made this. No, of course not. What they did was they took pieces from a fabric store. They were already there. In fact, they might have been on the fabric shelf for 10 years. They were already there. And what they did was they compiled this and they stitched this together in a beautiful pattern in an orderly sequence, all right, and they said this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and it's just this beautiful, incredible thing that tells a bit of a story, if you will, and certainly communicates a message, because there's scripture verse on here and everything. Let's flip it around, okay? Can we do that? Let's do it this way, all right? So here it is. Even the back of it is awesome, you know? So this is, is a picture of more, let's flip it back around, uh, let's more about how Luke says he put together his 
uh, his gospel, all right? So let's, let's cheer one more time for Angelica. Thank you, Angelica. God bless you guys on your way to Ethiopia, all right? So thanks for making a pit stop up here. Okay, here we go. So let's go back to Luke's prologue. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. In other words, there's all these written records already out there. They've been there. Because they were, they, were, they were there and they were writing these down. Many, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. That's the people that saw them happen, that were there when they occurred. They, they, they were writing these historical accounts. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So even people that were born after Jesus over that 40 year period, they're hearing these compiled narratives who were compiled from eyewitness accounts and the word carefully handed down to them to this day. Okay, and he says, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated. So Luke is a good historian. He investigates things. He wants to make sure that this is legit. So he uh, has done so. And by the way, um, Archaeologist John McKay has a PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, he often is asked, like by like A and E Entertainment Network, National Geographic, when they have need for an archaeologist, um, they call in Dr. McKay. Uh, in fact, he wrote a 432-page textbook on archaeology in the New Testament. And here's what he says about the the about Luke uh, and about uh, about his accuracy. He says the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as an historian. Another noted archaeologist says uh, he has examined Luke's uh, examined all of his references to. 32 different countries, this is in Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke and Acts, 32 different countries, 54 cities, nine islands, he doesn't make a single mistake, all of his facts are good, he, and he's very accurate in what he does, so he's a careful historian, all right? So this is what he says, and so that you may, he says, I've carefully investigated them, and I put them in an orderly sequence, so I have a purpose and a plan to this, but I didn't just make this up, I didn't just heard some stories and wrote them down. No, he's compiled various eyewitness accounts and put them together in an orderly sequence, so that, what? You may know the certainty of the things which you have been instructed. So you know this stuff actually happened. It's like real. We didn't make it up. It's not legends. It's not myths. It's not, you know, whatever. All these things. Okay, so uh, so that's what, what he says. And actually, the other thing we know, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the four gospels about Jesus Christ, um, and especially if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you, uh, you recognize something real quick, is that there's a lot of overlap between them. That they have, in some places, the exact same wording. I mean, identical wording. And then there's some variations in their thing. So what's happened is, most likely, most Bible scholars believe that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written first. And that Luke and Matthew are using him as one of their base, base uh, foundational documents, and they're adding to uh, other things that they know to be true to, to tell their story, all right? And so that's how it came about. Now, Mark was a companion of the apostle Peter, and he re repeatedly is talking about Peter in the book. In fact, he gets mentioned, Peter gets mentioned more in Mark's gospel than any other place. And he's second only to Jesus in the person who's mentioned in the gospel of Mark. So he's 
he's taking this from somebody who knows his stuff, who know, who's done his homework, who was there. And, it, and, and this is who Luke has gone to Mark and said, okay, here's Mark. And then he's taking these other narratives and this beautiful quilt comes about. All that to say, it's very, very different from the story of the telephone game. That's not how it happened. It, it all happened. We have written accounts that have existed from the time of Jesus and they're being compiled together, all right? Like a quilt, all right? You with me? Carefully investigated. Um, by the way, I'll just throw this in for free. Sometimes oral tradition gets a bad rap. There are cultures that have been studied who do quite well at actually passing along their truths and, and their stories in an accurate way of what happened for a long time. In fact, how many of you, raise your hand for just a minute, if you know the date and year in which you were born, okay, raise your hand, okay, how do you know that? You know that by oral tradition. You say, oh, no, I have a birth certificate. That could have been forged. We all know that, right? But you had somebody who can vouch for it, like your mom. She was there, Right? And she can say, nope, sure enough, it's, this is the day. That's right. And you learned that for years before you ever saw your birth certificate. I don't even remember the first, I was in my 20s or 30s, the first time I saw my birth certificate. But I knew that I was born on January 6, 1961. Why? Because my mother told me. And my brothers and sisters, knew, and it was passed on accurately to me. Finally, I got the written thing and said, yep, checks out. All right. That's what we're saying here. Um... This is, this is good stuff. Keep asking questions, all right? So then, but, but what about, you know, people say, it's just a bunch of myths and legends and kind of baked up from whatever. Peter says this. Here's what he says. The apostle Peter says, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, he's contrasting it to pagan mythology, which they lived in a pagan world with lots of stories out there and legends about Zeus and whoever. Uh, instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We actually saw this, all right? And then he goes on to say, for he, we, he received honor and glory, Jesus did from God the Father, when the voice came from to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. He's saying, he's referring to the transfiguration of Jesus and he says, we were there guys. This isn't a myth or legend or story we passed on. We were actually there guys. While we also, and by the way, he would go, many people would go to, through torture, persecution and execution to their death saying that they were eyewitnesses of these events. Not a single one of them that we have record of has ever denied that. And then he says, above all, you must know, oh, excuse me, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. What does that mean? He's saying the other, here's another thing, is that you have the Old Testament scriptures, and there's prophecies and predictions and so forth, and they are accurately fulfilled in Christ. Hundreds of them. We don't have time to go through, but if you did, you say, what is the likelihood that all of these things could have come true in the person of Jesus? He says, because no prophecy 
it comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the Bible claims that these, these, these are not legends, these are not myths, they are eyewitness accounts, they are rooted in Old Testament history coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus, and they didn't make this stuff up, but they claim that they sense that God himself was carrying them along to write these things down. All right, and you look into this and say, okay, does this seem to be God's word? Okay, so the, this, this question comes up, okay? Wait a minute. I, you know, a lot of these stories in the Bible, they, they, they were predated by pagan myths, and they just kind of rehashed them and put new names on them, and that's just what, one prominent one you hear all the time, every Easter, is that, well, there are all these pagan resurrection myths and legends these pagan gods dying and rising and you know the christians came along and just kind of put jesus name scratched out whatever name was before and put jesus in the place and there's their there's their myth there's their legend is that true are there all these are there always these ancient uh resurrection pagan myths well this question was asked uh by by dr william lane craig who is an incredible scholar uh, he has the um, he has the uh, the he has earned two prestige doctorates or two earned doctorates from prestigious European universities. He's one of the most highly respected scholars in the world, uh, and he was asked this very question uh, at, a, at a at a at a little panel up in front of 600 people, a lot of them skeptics, and one skeptic asked this very question about the resurrection myths that preceded Jesus. Let's see what Dr. William Lane Craig says. Uh, the resurrection, you just the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that myth is, it's not really unique. Uh, there's been a lot of other creation myths and uh, resurrection myths like that in other religions. And there are thousands of other religions. Now, I, I know I'm probably not gonna convert you in front of 600 people, uh, but do, doesn't that make you wonder at least um, perhaps it would if it were accurate, but it's not. <laughs> um, now, it's in fact a myth perpetrated on YouTube and the internet that there are ancient myths of dying and rising gods in, in the ancient world. This was uh, a contention of scholars in comparative religion back in the late 1700s, 1800s, that is now almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarships of ancient religion. Look at a book by a Trig Mettinger, who is, I believe, a Swedish scholar who has written a, a major book on dying and rising gods. And he says, people who think that there were pagan myths of dying and rising deities are, are like dinosaurs today. Hardly anybody believes that there were such things. When you look at these supposed parallels, they turn out to be spurious and concocted. And in fact, there's nothing in pagan mythology comparable to uh, Jesus' resurrection. So this is just misinformation that's disseminated in popular media that isn't characteristic of uh, scholarship on, on ancient mythology and, and religion. I'd add one quick thing to that, by the way. Let's even just assume that Gilgamesh and all this stuff that often gets uh, compared to uh, the, the story of the resurrection of Christ, let's say that these legends uh, of resurrection legends are absolutely true, that, they, that, that others have made that claim. The belief 
in that legend died. It didn't change anybody's life. No one risked their life for that. Why, why, why'd they risk their life for this resurrection story? Why did, why did this resurrection story change lives? Why is it still changing people's lives 2,000 years later? And those other ones that are purported of antiquity died out. That's another question I think that could be asked. More in a moment. Stay tuned. All right, let's get to part two of this Theology Thursday. Recent message from my home church asking the question, is the Bible unreliable and outdated? What about all those alleged contradictions? Watch this. So then what I do is I begin to offer them the contradictions that that they would have learned if they dug into this, that here are contradictions. I'll tell you some alleged contradictions. And some of them are simply misunderstandings or misinterpretations of texts that have been dealt with for centuries, uh, that have been resolved and it's not really an issue. But there are some interesting ones, like one of the most common ones out there is the, the, um, the, uh, the uh, death of Judas Iscariot. And in Matthew's gospel, it says he hanged himself. And in the book of Acts, uh, it says that he fell headlong and his, uh, his uh, body broke open and his entrails spilled out. Sorry for telling you this right before lunch. Anyway, but they say, which one's right? I mean, they're obviously contradiction. One of them hanged himself. One of them, he fell up against some rocks or something and his entrails burst out and his entrails. Okay, whatever. Okay, the first thing is, I don't think we give these authors enough credit, like they knew each other and talked to each other and that they would purposely um, contradict each other knowing, I mean, these guys talk to each other. They would purposely uh, publish a contradiction, not thinking that anyone would notice. We don't give those people enough credit for just being smart people. The second thing, though, is that, you know, actually, how many of you have ever fallen on a sidewalk or maybe even the woods or something? Did your body burst open and your entrails fall out? No. Maybe if you fell or jumped off a cliff or something, something like that happened. But actually, more commonly what happens is your, your, your skin is very elastic. Now, you might die from internal injuries, but it doesn't necessarily burst open. It could, but it's not very common. Unless you've been like hanging from a tree in the Jerusalem sun for a while and your skin has become kind of hardened and and less elastic and dried out, then it's more likely if you finally fall from a branch or something, then your body hits something and then it does spill out. So it's it's at least very easily resolved uh, at, the, at the very least. And by the way, we do this all the time. Somebody, somebody says, you know, hey, what happened? And they say, well, this guy, uh, how'd this guy get injured? Or what happened to him? Well, he got T-boned um, by another car and, you know, it, it, it knocked him out and, and this happened. All right. But then a medical examiner comes along and says, well, actually, there's serious head trauma and there's these internal injuries. And it's a different definition. Same event, different description of what happened or a more extensive subscription. We find this all the time. So that one is is just a common one. There are many others uh, and there's entire volumes written on alleged Bible contradictions uh, that you can study and learn. And some of them are hard, uh, but I've given you one uh, that is, is 
one of the prominent ones, they say, and it's, it's not actually that hard to imagine a resolution to it at all. Uh, what about all the errors in the Bible? There are so many mistakes in the Bible, it is often said. Um, and one of the people who has really uh, promoted this a lot in our culture is a, an author named Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a scholar and he has made a lot of money uh, in his books that he's written. One of them is a book called Misquoting Jesus. And in this book, Bart Ehrman asserts that there are more than 400,000 errors in the Bible. Ehrman claims that the New Testament copies all differ from one another in many, in many thousands of places. Sadly, um, uh, and this is from a great book you can get out in the atrium called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. Sadly, this is the type of claim that has caused many Christians to doubt their faith and many skeptics to feel they are justified in their assertions of the Bible's errors. But what are the alleged errors? We need to think about that and examine it more closely and contextually at the apparent contradictions and mistakes to see if they really are what the skeptics claim. And when we do this, we find that many mistakes people cite in the Bible are nothing new. They are not errors, but passages that are misread or misunderstood and have been known and explained by scholars of all stripes for many years. And when Bart Ehrman claims that there are more than 400,000 errors, he isn't talking about 400,000 separate mistakes like he makes it sound. Rather, he is speaking about small variations between different manuscripts. In other words, there's occasionally a word here or there spelled differently in the original Greek or Hebrew when you compare one manuscript to another. So for example, like we have the American labor, L-A-B-O-R, and then we have the British L-A-B-O-U-R. He would count that as a mistake, all right? And then he multiplies it. Why? Because Ehrman's number is not based on 400,000 different instances in the Bible, but rather on the number of copies that have been made of whatever text he is arguing is in dispute. So if there's a problem in Matthew 16:4, for instance, and it had been printed in 30 different original manuscripts, Bart Ehrman counts that not as one problem, but as 30 problems. All right. Now, another New Testament scholar, Craig Bloomberg, points out that based on Bart Ehrman's own logic of counting a single mistake and multiplying it by the amount of times it was published, one could easily argue, quote, there are 1.6 million errors in the first printing of Bart Ehrman's book since someone counted 16 typos and there were 100,000 printed. It's just not fair the way it's done. That, that, there's a lot of academic dishonesty that is going on. He is right in pointing out that there are differences in the manuscripts. And forgive me for this, but I'm going to show you just a page out of my Greek New Testament. All right, here we go. So here it is. Here's the Greek New Testament. I know you can't read it. It's all Greek to you. That's fine. All right. So the top page, you can't even see it from here. It's okay. You don't need to. This is John 3. At the bottom is John 3.16. And, um, and this is the Greek text. All right? And, uh, and the body of it. And off to the right are the cross-references of similar scriptures, which you have in your English Bible. Right? At the bottom, though, what I've circled there in red is what's called the textual apparatus. All right? And what this is, it gives... Variant readings from different manuscripts and families of manuscripts and, uh, and, and what, how we compare those to one another. And there are lots of these. And there, I mean, look at them. There's a, there's a lot of these, but most of these are quite minor. Uh, almost all of them, spelling differences, word order, additional word here or there. Not a single one of them 
makes any difference whatsoever in the essential teachings of the New Testament or the Bible. Not a single one of them. If you took all the different readings and just replaced them with the other ones, you'd still have essentially the same Bible. And by the way, your English Bibles, if they're modern translations, will note something. Other manuscripts say such and such. So it lays it all out there. And you've read the Bible. You, you know that, that it doesn't. Oh, that completely changes the meaning. And no, it doesn't. It slightly alters it. Sometimes doesn't change the meaning at all. In fact, there are only two chapters in the entire, there are only two passages in the entire Bible. Two passages in the entire Bible of which there is significant question as to whether it was part of the original text. One of them is the longer ending of Mark's gospel in Mark 16. You can look it up. And in modern translations, it will say this ending is not in the oldest, earliest manuscripts. It tells you right there. And then John chapter 8, same thing. There's a story, and they said this is not in the oldest, earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Whether those, you take whichever story you want, leave them in or keep them out, that makes no difference to the essential teaching of the New Testament. So this skeptical claim that there are, you know, 400,000 errors is so unfair and so exaggerated to be ludicrous. And yet many people hear it and that caused them to doubt the Bible. Um, so let's go on. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's name, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 Brothers and sisters, at one time, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying the central truths of the Christian faith are this. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. That's the heart and soul of the Christian faith. That's the major on the majors of all majors, right? And he says, here's the thing. You can go talk to 500 eyewitnesses, and most of them are still alive. Yes, it is according to the scriptures. Yes, it has been written down. It was prophecies of the Old Testament. Yet it has been written down today. But you can talk to eyewitnesses today. And we have no record of a single one of those 500 people ever recanting or denying. Even when they were persecuted, tortured, and even when they were executed. None of them recanted. So the Bible is incredible in that it has this unity of 66 documents produced over centuries in different circumstances and different uh, places, uh, each developing an ongoing narrative about the same theme and the same central figure, the fulfilled prophecies and predictions, the eyewitness testimony, um, the uh, written, writer's insistence on the truth of what they've written, even though it frequently resulted in their persecution, torture, and death, the fact that writings, if false, could easily have been disproved, by people that were there at the time. Uh, with a remarkable agreement of the early church on which documents should be included. We haven't had time to go in and talk about the formation of the canon. But the early church was unanimous about, you know, here is what our, our, our Bible is. That was almost completely unanimity on that. And on and on we could go. So the, the resurrection really is the, is the linchpin of this whole thing, guys. If you read the Bible, just as a reliable historical document, and say... Does this seem to be true? Did this seem to hold together uh, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day? If that is true, then Jesus is Lord. 
He's not a lunatic making up things and thinking he's a god. He's not a fraud or a liar who's just concocted the greatest, um, you know, crazy story ever, but he really is who he claims to be. And when, if, if, if I come to that point, then I say, well, then Jesus, if you really are raised from the dead and you really are Lord of all, then whatever you teach is what I believe. And what you teach about the Bible is what I believe about the Bible. And Jesus had a very high, high view of the Bible. He believed it was the word of God. So guys, um, the third and last question is this, does the Bible prove to be God's word? In other words, like, Winnie the Pooh stuck his head in the honey jar and he tasted it. The Bible says, taste and see. If the Lord is good, how happy is the person who takes refuge in him? I want to challenge you, if you're a skeptic or if you're just a follower of Jesus, read the Bible. Taste it. And not just as, a, as an impersonal exercise, in that, but actually in a personal way. Experience the truths of the Bible. Jesus said something similar to taste and see. He said, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, Jesus says, if you really want to know the truth of God, you really want to do what's right, the will of God, you'll find out whether what I'm saying is true, Jesus, what I'm saying is true, or whether I just made the whole thing up. Whether this really comes from God or whether I'm just some fraud or lunatic. Luke's gospel says these words. I love this verse. Chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. All these historical and geographical details which have been confirmed, archaeology and written records. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, again, all proven uh, by archaeologists, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And I think Luke, I love how he writes this because on the one hand, he wants to root the story of Jesus in history and, and geography and, and the times and the current events that were happening. But he also wants to share, you know what? The word of God came to John in the wilderness. And there's an abiding sense in which the truth, the word of God, doesn't necessarily heard in the halls of Roman emperors and governors and such. There's something that is, that is transcendent above all those day to day. Most of these people, we wouldn't even know about them except their connection to Jesus. There's something that transcends common things that these folks believed. Herod and Tiberius and all these different ones that, that, that lasts. It's a lasting truth. So today I want to encourage you to seek out the truth of the Bible. And if you're a skeptic today or you have questions, I, I, I applaud you being here. Good, way to go. I, 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 I mean, I, I'm, that, I'm a part of that camp of questioners. Ask hard questions. Why is this so? What about this? What about that? Great, go for it. But can I, and ask hard questions because the Bible will stand up to the most intense scrutiny. But can I ask you one further thing? And that is, you have your own beliefs. You have certain cultural narratives that you've listened to. You have things that you believe to be true. And what I want to ask you is, will you be just as rigorous and ask hard questions about those doubts as you are about the Bible?
Because I think I come across a lot of people who just, because we live in a culture, they just assume these things are true. They, they say, well, you know, take one example, just sexual ethics. They hear what the culture has to say, and they, they say, the Bible is so outdated. Let me tell you something about the Bible's sexual ethics. It was out of style the day it was written. It was incredibly unpopular in the pagan religions of Moses' time. It was incredibly, the teaching of Jesus and Paul and Peter and the others were incredibly unpopular in the pagan religions of the day. It doesn't reflect that they are out of step, but that we are products of our time. That we ourselves, how many of you look back, I, I, I grew up in the 70s, and I look at the crazy stuff we wore back then. Bell bottoms and, and these plaids and these tie dyes and like what were we thinking the hairstyles it's hilarious to look back at those but the thing is is that we then assume that what we're wearing today is just normal that there never will come a day 40 50 years from now that they'll ask of us what were they thinking see we don't question our own times and so what I would say to you is that we are, the Bible is not so much a product of, of its time as we are the product of our time. And we can ask those hard questions of the Bible. And it has stood firm and true for thousands of years. But make sure you ask the hard questions of the, the own, the present day beliefs and circumstances and teachings, which many of which are just embedded. They're not even written down. They're just part of the air that we breathe. Ask the hard questions. Is that really true? How do I know that that's the nope, way it is? Wrong, right. I should question that. Well, my faux pas, not knowing my mic was on aside, um, as you can see, uh, that's why we chose to air that today uh, because I think uh, Pastor Quinton tackles that question better than we could have if we just handled it ourselves. And I, I think, I think the, if anything, among the many important things he said, the most important thing was at the end. You know, whether it's questions I've debated uh, people about, you know, uh, my view of the law, my view of the Constitution, I'm perfectly fine having the assertions and, and values and premises that I bring to the table questioned. But then you then need to have, uh, need to question yours too. If you don't like the idea of the laws of nature and nature's God, for example, where do, you, where do you think the law comes from then? How do you know that that's true? How do you know that? And what you hear there at the end is you heard Pastor Quentin um, give you a, a, a variation of a theme we've talked a lot about here on our show over the years. We as believers are called to have a ready defense for what we believe, but we're not called to always be on the defensive. The other side of the argument gets to be cross-examined too. Their claims get to be critically, skeptically uh, analyzed as well. And if, if you're just skeptical of the Christian argument, but you're not skeptical of the arguments that, that you have adopted um, differently, you're not a critical thinker. You're a sheep. You're in a cult. That's how cults behave. We're going to have much more to say about this uh, with the overtime today. 
since you ran out of time. We're going to have our commentary there for those of you that want to watch. BlazeTV.com slash days to get a subscription. For the rest of you that do subscribe at Blaze TV, it'll be up there later this afternoon. For the rest of you, we are back at it again tomorrow, noon to 2 Eastern, right after Glenn Beck here on Blaze TV radio and podcast. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.